Empower Radio presents Out of the Fog. Join intuitive guide and spiritual teacher Karen Hager for lively, positive conversation with lightworkers, healers, and dynamic wisdom keepers. Get ready for inspiration and connection. This is Out of the Fog on Empower Radio. Here's your host, Karen Hager. Hello and welcome to Out of the Fog. I'm Karen Hager. Each week at this time, we gather for spiritual conversation and enlightening guests, and I'm glad you're here. Time and distance are no barrier to energy, and that means that no matter when you're listening, no matter how you found us, you are here for a reason. And I hope that something in the next hour opens a door for you and helps you move forward. Now, after working in palliative care for more than two decades, Stephen Jenkinson came to this conclusion. As a culture, as a species, we are utterly unprepared to embrace death and the grief that comes with it. He's here today to share some wisdom from his new book, Die Wise, and in it he shares stories from his experiences working with the dying and their families that illustrate the pitfalls of denial and the good, the gift that can come when we face the end of life openly. Dying well, he believes, is a moral, political, spiritual obligation that each of us owes our ancestors and our heirs. Are you ready to meet him? Stephen Jenkinson is an activist, teacher, author, and farmer. He has a master's degree in theology from Harvard University and a master's degree in social work from the University of Toronto. Formerly a program director at a major Canadian hospital and medical school assistant professor, Stephen is now a sought-after workshop leader, speaker, and consultant to palliative care and hospice organizations. He's the founder of the Orphan Wisdom School in Canada and the subject of the documentary film Grief Walker. His latest book is Die Wise, a manifesto for sanity and for the soul. You can find out more about Stephen and his work at orphanwisdom.com. Stephen, welcome to Out of the Fog. Thank you, Karen. I'm just finding my way out of it as we speak here. Oh, (laughs) that's true. And there's always more fog. You know, we find our way to a little clear place and then there's a little more fog. Uh Can you share with us just a little bit of your personal journey to this place, to the work that you do now? Because you, like me, you had many adventures um, to get to where you are now. Yeah. Well, I probably would. I myself wouldn't, wouldn't credit it with the elevated status of being a journey, because that, that implies some kind of vague sense, I think, I think of purpose or direction or, or goal or eventuality or something. And probably in my case, I crossed a lot of things off the list that I probably not should have been messed with in the first place mm. and ended up with with um i i if if this is not too overstated uh probably what i was supposed to be doing all along wherein i kind of recognized myself pretty much for the first time and the great news about that is that i didn't come to this um this uh, eruption into my plan you know my 20s or even my 30s uh i had some ballast in the in the hold by then so that when the uh the inevitable and kind of supreme uh, letting out of all the gas of every dream and vision and, and, and conviction I ever had. Uh, I didn't, you know, heal over in a, in the, you know, the first tempest and went down a Davy Jones locker. But uh, I was just old enough that uh, I caught I caught the scent of something um, that was older than anything I could think of, and I, I suppose that turned to what I, into what I'm doing now. So most of it is a is good fortune that uh, I can't really claim any um, 
authorship in, but I sure can claim being the beneficiary of. Hmm. You speak in the book about a kind of a a rhythm, a holy rhythm that we can fall into into our individual lives, and then kind of that falls into that greater rhythm is as you fell into or stumbled into or keeled over into the work that you're doing now, is that, does that connecting with that life purpose or path, does that connect with that rhythm? Well, you know, this, it's, this is a bit uh, kind of disembodied kind of way of referring to these things. And I probably, I started it. So uh, I, I would probably rather say, that the the scale of one's life should resemble kind of something pretty ordinary. Uh, that's the best understanding of it. And then, you know, leave it to others to elaborate if they so choose. But in my case, uh, it was it was simply you know I was I was kindly pursued over a couple of years by somebody who was more certain than I knew how to be that I might have some chops in this uh, death trade, a trade that I didn't frankly even knew existed at the time. And, uh, you know, I finally stopped saying no, mm. or maybe, or later, which, you know, again, this is the stuff that we usually say instead of getting on with what we were born to do, perhaps, and, uh, you know, running out of reasons why not. That's not a bad antidote for heroism mm. and a sense of self-importance that doesn't really need, need to be there. But um, I suppose, you know, retroactively, I had a sense of, use the word purpose, and, you know, that became more and more recognizable. Uh, I'll get a little uh, practical now. It became more recognizable to me uh, when I thought, you know, for a time that I was in the death trade and helping people die. I thought that was the job, to help people die. It sounds kind of obvious and, and, and not that achieved. And it turned out, in short order, I began to realize I was the only person who thought that that's why I was there. In other words, the people who are dying and their families and the people who are paid to know better, uh, all of whom were in some kind of cahoots um, to maintain the idea that dying is something that wasn't supposed to happen. So who wants help doing something that's, quote, against the law? Hmm. If, if you can un- imagine such a thing, that you come to your dying days believing that some, some grave injustice is in the process of unfolding. And... That's what I walked into the middle of, unawares and unbeknownst to me and unannounced and all the rest, which means I had to craft another understanding of what I was there for that no one was asking of me. And I suppose that's a departure from, you know, being in the customer satisfaction business, which so many people in that business seem to be in. And that's where I, you know, that was my crossroads, you know, and I had to choose, I think. And I simply couldn't choose something that um, that did such harm uh, to my understanding of what these people deserved from me. So instead of being there to help them die, I came to realize that I was there to get them to die. And that's very, it has a directness. It, that what you just said has a directness, has a boldness about it that is, that is all through the book. I found that as I read this book, I, my mind kept skittering away from what you were saying. I would understand what you said. And then I got caught up in all my euphemisms and all my, right. We're, we're afraid to look, or at least I think I'm afraid to look sometimes. Mm. And it must be difficult to then walk into that situation to be there to help in that way. And you're in a room of people who won't look or can't look or don't look. 
Yeah, difficult doesn't begin to describe it. Because, you know, if you're in some kind of helping capacity, whatever it might be, either through medicine or, or through words or, or, you know, touch or whatever it might be, how do you know if you're being helpful? Generally speaking, uh, most people who are delivering that kind of service look to some kind of buy-in, right? That, that the person on the receiving end feels helped, uh, experiences this as being helpful. How then to possibly achieve such a shared understanding uh, with people who are in their dying time convinced that their moral obligation is to not die for as long as possible? Mm-hmm. How do you get that buy-in, that shared how do you understand that this is helpful? And, you know, frankly, it probably wasn't by almost any general understanding of the term helpful. It wasn't helpful. So I had to come, I had to some, have some other abacus, you know, some other way of keeping track of something that might be useful. That's the alternative I came to. You know, it's very ordinary word. I, I was trying to find a way of being useful. And... Um, I, I simply couldn't ask uh, the people that I was trying to work with to understand this work as potentially useful. I, for the moment, all I could do was ask them to consider, you know, without any, without any payday to accompany it. And those are the very uh, hesitant beginnings of what turned into, you know, the book that you've referred to and, and this whole Orphan Wisdom Enterprise of mine, which I guess is in around 15 years or something, um, you know, I, I continue to do things that, that aren't asked of me. But I could, I could send it in very high relief for you by telling you a very brief story that happened. I'm in a room full of therapists, not my idea of, you know, a great time, but there I was. And we were watching this film, Grief Walker, you may have seen. The National Film Board of Canada made this documentary about me eight or nine years ago. And... Um, at the end of the screening, the first question, as you'll see clearly, was not a question at all. It was a, was a kind of a, it was a lawyer's question, you know, not really a question, an accusation. And, and the therapist said to me, quite simply, what gives you the right to be so direct with people who are dying? Which is a rather bracing way to start the evening, <laughs> you might imagine. And you might think, Jesus, where are we going to go from here? Uh, but, um, you know, stand and deliver time, right? Don't stand there. If you're hoping for, you know, to go back and forth with platitudes, so, so at least it was bracing and it was a proper, uh, you could say, um, tolling of the bell for what's at stake these days. And so my response, for better or for worse, although I'm, I'm rather pleased with it still, was to say to this young therapist, um, you know, you deserve a good answer to that. It's frankly not a question, but, but uh, oh well, here it goes. Tell me then. What is it that gives you the right to be so indirect with people who are dying? And you could see, not only in him, but in everyone in that room, no one had considered their genial, affable, problem-solving, patient-centered, hope-addicted orientation to dying as anything other than, by definition, compassionate and professionally responsible and caring, and that, and and I got flatlined for an answer. Huh. Nobody actually knew what to say, because I was, I was recalibrating indirectness as dereliction of duty and malpractice, and I still do. Huh. When you say hope, 
addicted it's true there is that idea and when you talk about managed managed death there is that idea of if it can be done then it then it should be done yeah, and it should it's be, yeah. kind of the obligation of the one who is dying as well as the obligation of the the medical professionals and everybody else to kind of to go for that and to sort of and it's and that's a when you put it that way it's horrible it doesn't feel like helping it feels like an ordeal at a time when you don't have resources either that or you give half a second's consideration of the phrase I just used and decide either I'm dangerous or I'm crazy or both, and you go back to the, the hope bunker. Huh? And I have to tell you something. I was in a, ho- a local hospital here today for an appointment. As it happened, the little place I was at was across the hall from the chemo. You know, the, the, day, um, the daycare, no, what do they call it? The day hospital chemo lab. And people were in their chairs and they're, you know, you know connected to the bags and so on. And, of course, in a moment like that, I'm a, I farm most of the time, so chemo is not part of my daily life. And it, it's, all, in all honesty, something that I don't think about uh, as a rule. And I'm sitting across from a number of people who are, you know, sort of lined up and on the, you know, on the needle. But the point I, I want to make to you is the little reception area uh, where the, you know, the affable and well-meaning nurse is waiting for them all behind... Behind her, on the wall, in a kind of, obviously, fake bronze or whatever it was, huge, I must tell you, gleaming with a place of clear centrality and honor and purpose, uh, with scroll and, 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 and gold leaf all around it, of course, was the word hope. Hmm. And I thought again, as I've thought many times, that people go into that obligated to hope. Okay, not it's not a you know freely chosen, freely offered proposition, one amongst many. There wasn't contending orientations on that wall, let me tell you that. It wasn't like these posters you see now where the kind of logo of every world religion uh, is on the one poster you know, for the sake of inclusivity. I can promise you this, when you're in the cancer trade or any big pharma-driven situation, you don't have um, that inclusivity there. Um, to my mind, the proper, at least imagined response to the tyranny of hope is not hopelessness, because that's basically the same thing. Two sides of the same coin, two, two brands of cola in Walmart. That's what that is. But you, you could imagine coming to your dying time hope-free. That was my formulation to try to craft a real alternative and understand that hope is not a prerequisite to being utterly alive. I, I preferred that word over, you know, deeply and the rest, but utterly alive while you're dying does not require you to be hopeful. In fact, the more hopeful you, you are, the less utterly alive you tend to be uh, because you're counting on the future in which your aliveness can appear. But for the moment, you know, you're addicted to that love drug, excuse me, that hope drug coursing through your veins to try to get you to the future so you can be I suppose, alive again. Hmm. And you talk a lot about the idea of that that hope or that uh, kind of carrying on with the focus of having more time. And in the book, it's always capital M, capital T, more right. time. Yeah. And as I read the book, more time doesn't start to feel like something that is maybe all that it's cracked up to be. Mm. Truly. 
Well, as you read, and as many people have found, much to their chagrin or bitter disappointment or, or much to the assassination of their sense of well-being, more time turns into, and more, this is more or less in, inevitably what occurs. Yes, you have more time with the kids if you have them or the grandchildren if you have them or the cat or, you know, time in the park or all the other things that you believe you opted for. But alongside those achievements, there's other achievements that you don't opt for, like more chemo, more radiation, more, more uh, uh, sort of drugs for the side effects of the thing that got you the more time in the first place. And, of course, more drugs for the side effects of those initial drugs, and off down the long path we go. But over and above that, I mean, the biggest shadow that falls across the achievement of more time is the one that seems to least appear as what it is. And it is this. You live your more time in the, in the distinct shadow of the inevitable and non-negotiable ending of your days. That your more time is lived out as a companion to the end, you see. It's not forestalling the end. In fact, the end is more emphatically present. And that would be a good thing if the people we're talking about, myself and yourself included probably, were raised and educated and deeply steeped in a culture that was sane, where dying is concerned, because it's sane where living is concerned. But if you weren't, and most people I've worked with were not raised in such a culture, then more time alongside your death is more like a recipe for a low-grade, grinding despair and, and depression and terror that seems to crafted to deliver you to an almost inescapable prescription for sedation at the end of your life. And it's no surprise to anybody listening, I'm sure, the dying people are the, more, the most sedated portion of the population in North America at any given moment. And is that because we think it helps um, to be sedated or because it... Mm, that's, that, that old joke, I don't, I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens, that take me out, take me out, take me away, I just don't, I don't want to know. Is that why we're sedated? Well... I mean, people opt for sedation either as, um, you know, physicians or technicians on the one side or as family or friends or patients on the other because they believe in the option. They believe that this is, there's something inherently compassionate about not being aware, you see. Well, if awareness is tantamount to terror, mm -hmm. this is not a hard case to make. Mm -hmm. But the question is, is dying inherently you know, terrifying. Is it inherently traumatizing? This is a question that I never hear asked if I don't ask it. And, you know, uh, suffice to say for the moment that there is a strategy in place that, that copes with that terror, that trauma, that assumes that dying is inherently traumatizing because it's trafficking in the idea. And that would be your famous five stages of dying. Mm -hmm. And whenever you have some kind of strategy like that, that plots out these strategies and gives you a place you're supposed to get to called acceptance, right? And all these other, you know, ghettos that you're supposed to pass through on the way, like, um, I don't even know them, actually. Uh, um, 
Denial. anger and, and, yep, and bargaining anger. and all that thing. Yep. Yeah, when you have all of that, when you have somebody prescribing such a thing for you, you know the fix is already in. <laughs> that The belief that this is inherently traumatizing and needs to be managed is never wondered about. Now, if dying was really like that, it would mean that the world over, people would have recourse to some, their version of the famous five stages. And failing that, or maybe because of that, they would have recourse to um, all that medication at the end of life. If you travel around a bit, you soon discover that this is simply not true. People die everywhere. This is true. People die in terror everywhere. This is not true. And it's not because they don't get it. Maybe it's because they do. Hmm. Wow. And that, that idea that, I don't know, maybe it's an idea that I have, I don't know if others have it, but that idea that there is kind of an expiration date, there's a sell-by date that we're going, we don't just know when, and that every step we take we're getting closer to that date, and you better get your stuff done, and you could get the news at any moment. That, to me at least, that's not a... That isn't, I think I'm going to say helpful again. That isn't helpful as I try to live my life and be aware and present. And it doesn't help me to think that I'm up against this ticking thing. No, it's a conveyor belt mentality. It's a machine. You know, it comes from the idea. I've asked many times in front of people. I don't know how many audiences. You know, I was in 12 countries last year to give you a feel for it. And I asked this question almost invariably, if I remember. The question is, when do you begin to die? It probably shocks no one listening that the almost universal answer is the moment that you're born. Nobody hesitates about that. They say it like they're reading from the gospel of the way it is. Hmm. They, they're quoting it like it's some kind of, you know, fifth book of the evangel who knows. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you want to say to people, uh, where'd you get that from? And they look at you like, well, what other answer is there, man? Come on, get with the program. And, you know, say it again, you travel other places. There's a lot of people in this world who have no such idea. It's not like they don't believe it. It's like it would never occur to them to see a newborn as a dying person. Okay, so this idea is a machine idea. You know, that we're basically a watch spring, Mm -hmm. right? And the moment that we're born, it starts ticking down. You see, you recognize it in the very uh, phrases that you used to describe it. You know, is life really a winding down to some inevitable demise, like, a, like the worst bumper sticker you ever saw? <laughs> is that really what it is? I mean, can you even look out there and with any authority identify the arc of life as down, down, and collapse? Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. Well, you wouldn't have a program based on, you know, the things that you're advocating if you believe that. But yet, I mean, it is the quote, prevailing wisdom of our time, that uh, the sooner you get with the idea that you're born to die, and it's just what happens in between that modifies how you get there. Mm. And that's all there is to it? Well, the interesting thing is, when people say you begin to die the moment that you're born, I mean, what about before then? Apparently, in your gestation period, you're granted reprieve from being gathered amongst the dying. But the nanosecond you take a breath, I guess it's all but over. (laughs) I know that we've got just, I'm watching the clock and I'm getting yeah. all nervous because we got two minutes before we go to the, cause okay. before we go to the break. I can but, answer short too. But when, oh, I love it when you answer long. I wish you'd never stop. 
Um, when is it then that we begin to die? I think, I think this is a mercurial thing, to be honest. I don't think there's something to point to. I think rather it's this kind of alchemical mingling of a willingness to recognize that your days have in some fashion or other shifted, uh, that the momentum of them is somehow different, that, that the, the, the functional illusion that you were basically calling the shots has been eclipsed in some fashion by you know, a certain subtle um, report back from the front lines of your nerve endings or your energy or your, uh, you know, things of this kind, or, or, or perhaps more graphic, you know, quote-unquote quote symptoms on the one side. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of some crude information that comes in that whispers such a possibility. But this in and of itself, this doesn't, quote, get you dying, not by any stretch, because people die according to their according to the extent that they get it, if I could put it that way. So it's a, it's a kind of, it's a combination of a willingness and a capacity. That's what dying is. At the end of the day, you put those two things together and you turn them into one word. The word is skill. Dying is a skill. And it's not a skill of coping and hoping and when all else fails, doping, which is what we have, <laughs> basically the, the holy trinity of the way it is these days, that that the skill of dying is the skill of living while you're dying, feeling no obligation to choose between these two things. Mm. You know, whereas whereas the, the norm is you're either one or the other, and that kind of apartheid does nobody no good. Mm. You're listening to Out of the Fog. My guest is Stephen Jenkinson. His new book is Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. When we come back after this break, we'll continue our conversation. We'll be right back after this. Do you get tired of styling your hair every day? And do you want a good hairstyle every day? Hi, I'm Sarah Schuster. I went on a website called inventnow.org, and after that, I decided to invent something too. Something called the Insta-Do. Just imagine, you just put it over your head like a helmet does and you pick your hairstyle with the buttons on the side and you can have instant hairstyle in seconds. People like it. People like Jeff Bart. I like it. And people like Kenneth. It's this helmet thing and it fits over your head and it's great. Thank you, Kenneth. You should go to inventnow.org, and it could help you come up with your own invention. After all, look at me on the radio now. Anything's possible. Keep thinking. Get started on your own inventions, or just play some games at inventnow.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the National Inventors Hall of Fame Foundation, and the Ad Council. Hey, Larry, mind if I sit down? Nope. This coffee tastes like uh, coffee. So what's going on? Not much. What's new? Not much. Okay, but can you please put the newspaper down while you say not much? What newspaper? This newspaper. Oh, dude! What happened to your face? I see one, two, Ow. three, four, five, six... Ow. Dude, what is Ow. this? Eleven pieces of toilet paper stuck to your face? I'm shaving in the dark to save energy. I'm helping the environment. That's a dangerous way to help the environment. Well, sometimes you have to sacrifice yourself for the greater good. Dude. There's an easier and safer way to help the environment without sacrificing yourself. Go green, go public. Take public transportation. It's good for the environment and you won't have to live behind a newspaper. Wow. But for now, 
Put the newspaper back up. A message from the public transportation systems across the country. To learn more, visit publictransportation.org. I'm home, and I love it. I'm home where I belong. I'm home, and I love it. I'm home where I belong. It's always nice to come home. But these days, many Americans are at risk of foreclosure and losing their homes. Fortunately, help is available. Making Home Affordable is a free program from the U.S. government that has already helped over a million struggling homeowners. And we want to help you. I'm home. I'm home. And I love it. I'm home. I'm home. Find out now what your options are. Go to makinghomeaffordable.gov or call 1-888-995-HOPE. The sooner you act, the better chance we can help you. I'm home. I'm home. Where I be Brought to you by the U.S. Treasury, HUD, and the Ad Council. And now back to Out of the Fog with Karen Hager on Empower Radio. EmpowerRadio.com. Welcome back to Out of the Fog. I'm Karen Hager, and I'm talking with Stephen Jenkinson. His new book is Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. You can find out more about Stephen and his work at OrphanWisdom.com. And of course, I welcome your comments, your feedback on what you're hearing today. You can always find me at Karen at KarenHager.com. Stephen, you, we were talking before we went into the break about when does our, when does our dying begin? And you say in the book, and this is one of my favorite quotes. In fact, I think we need to have this on a t-shirt. Um, you said expecting to live is the training wheels on our spaceship of entitlement. What does that, what does that mean besides being a great, I think it's a great shirt. Um, what does it mean when we look at our feeling of entitlement to life, our entitlement to keep going. Wouldn't it be great if, quote-unquote, we did? Yeah. I don't see that happening so very often. I hear mm. it claimed and claimed and clawed back and reclaimed and planted again and all the rest. But, you know, it's, it's kind of, I guess, where we left off uh, before we were obliged to stop there for a bit. And it would be this. Um, if, okay... It's certainly happening in my country, uh, in Canada, and probably, uh, you know, if coming to a city near you, uh, in your country as well, if not already firmly there, and that is this kind of crescendoing alleged um, public discourse around euthanasia. Mm. This is a good place for us to consider what you've asked. So, of course, the people who are championing euthanasia in general uh, do so in the name of compassion. And this compassion is piqued or, or prompted by their take on suffering. So it's suffering that legitimizes euthanasia, particularly, no, I suppose, uniformly, when it's suffering unto the end of life. And suffering is deemed to be inherently destructive, inherently not necessarily part of the deal, and inherently somehow deeply hostile to you as a human being, especially as a kind of self-authored, autonomous, self-directed human being. And you can tell I'm kind of getting ready to say that in my understanding of it, in, when people have resorted to it, which happened very frequently when I was on the job, 
Um, it comes to this, I think, that euthanasia ha- is quickly becoming in North America and certainly will become in the next decade an extension, another expression of this culture's maniacal uh, uh, reliance or addiction to self-direction and autonomy and, quote, being in control. There's the big one. And the, the irony is that if people were candid with themselves when they're not dying and you were to ask them, so this thing about being in control of your life, is it? Could you make a demonstrable case that right now you're in control of your life? And I know that that's what the advertising obliges you to and all the other obscenities that we're obliged to deal with every day. But really, is our life in North America a question of who's in charge? Is that, is that what, are you really willing to live as if that's what it all comes down to? And then, and then your obligation is simply, to, well, you have to be in charge. Because I tell you, when you're dying, you don't have much expertise to bring to bear on this subject. That's really true. It's no surprise that between the, you know, the physicians and the funeral parlor, uh, you know, we've left it to the pros for quite a while now. And the reaction, the, the kind of reaction against that monopoly has been to reassume personal control. The problem is that there's no skill or capacity that's been crafted in the course of a person's life uh, to, to credit them with the ability to, quote, unquote, be in control of this, number one. But I think the bigger problem is viewing your life as something that is subject to control, you know. Yeah. You, the truth of the matter is that most of us live our lives um, not requiring this control uh, to be there except when we feel either despairing or that things are not going as we want. And if we lived in another time and place that was, if I could use the word more, spiritually prone, then the fact that you're not in control of your life would be a sure sign that your life is unfolding, that your life is finally having its way with you now that you're in, now that your control addiction is in collapse, you see. That's the way it would be understood. And the idea that you would try to reiterate control um, to get your life back on track would be madness. It would be sacrilege. Well, we live in a time where self-control is the religion. So euthanasia makes enormous sense now. What then, maybe there isn't an answer, but what, how can we begin to turn the, the tide of this so that we don't come up against this kind of this, um, this butting of heads between what we see as life and what we see as death, between what we see as control and loss of control, between what we see as suffering and compassion and pain? How do we make that shift? Well, first of all, if most people thought it was a good idea to make such a shift, you could be assured that it would already have been made. Hmm. So there's your first dilemma, <laughs> that this is an extraordinarily hard sell. Second of all, it can't be a sell at all. Yeah. Or it's just another regime, you know, it's just another solution. I mean, you would grant, if, if you're lucky enough to have, you know, three meals today, or the equivalent thereof, um, you would grant that as you sit down for lunch, you're, some part of you is not saying, oh, God, I have to do this again. This eating thing again? Another problem for my stomach to solve, eh? I hope not. I hope it's at some level a combination of celebratory and an exercise of deep gratitude that somehow food has come your way. Well, by the same token, then, surely life is not a problem for your psyche to solve, Right? 
And uh, I guess I would say to you in a nutshell, to answer the question in a manageable way for you, that the solution mind is one of the problems. The, what, what might be done differently is, is softening the edges of the solution mania. But I think we could come down to this and say, unless we're willing to begin with a clear-minded, matured, and achieved understanding of the proper place that endings of all kinds play and must play in our life, in our plans, in our capacity you know, to love and, 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 and to pursue you know, the depth of life, and to proceed as if the generations to come that will not live long enough to meet deserve that from us. All of this must be undertaken with a deep understanding that, that endings are hard, but they're mandatory, that um, the problems we now face, some of which are ecological, of course, uh, and, and many other stripes, these things are the beginning. The unwillingness to know how bad it's gotten condemns you to a sequence of solutions that are all generated by a mind that doesn't want to know how we got this way. So, you know, two-thirds, three-quarters of Diewise, at least 400-page book, at least 320 pages of that book are my attempt to give some understanding of how it's come to be as it is. So it's not exactly, you know, uh, party chatter in that book. <laughs> it's not going to win you friends when you start quoting from, well... There's a few. That's not a bad one you mentioned. But overall, you'll be deemed to be a drag or morbid or worse if you start proceeding as if, you know, a fifth of the things in that book are true. Because who wants to know? Who needs it? Kind of thing. And the answer is apparently only dying people need it. Everybody else can go along without it. So we are the way we are. It takes an adult, frankly, to be willing to know the depths of the problems that we are now in. And that's what we need. And, and in some fashion or other, I spoke very directly in DIYs uh, in order to address people as if, they're, as if they're deeply mature. And should that be slightly an error, my hope is that in addressing people in this fashion, it might craft a maturity uh, that the dominant culture, especially the consumer part of the culture, rewards people for never getting to, never achieving, never maturing to. As long as you're a want machine, the whole system will keep working. But if you start wondering, you know, how is it come? I mean, you have all these people dying badly, and nobody wants it to happen that way. How to make sense of such an arrangement? So it's not like you've got people on both sides of the, of the bad death debate, and some people are saying, well, bad death is good for you. I've never heard the likes of that kind of conversation, and yet they continue and continue. And I'm suggesting to you the principal reason is because there's no appetite for the kind of industrial strength dilemmas that we are now in. And we have to craft that. That's a proper beginning. Do you talk about making meaning for yeah. the end of life as opposed to, I know you said you were often asked to teach on finding meaning like oh there it is under the i left forgot i left it over there there it is well but to to make that meaning but to do that seems to me like we'd have to really be willing to look at i think we're kind of without a context right without like maybe like a culture we're without that thing that 
helps us remember kind of who we are and where we came from, where our home is, what our, what our broader path is, the bigger path. And without that, I think sometimes we just float. It's very difficult then to pin down what does it mean what I do with my life or what comes after or what came before when we're all kind of floating, as you say, all trying to kind of control our own lives. As we're all floating around, it's very difficult to put that in a, in a context, I guess. Well, as you may or may not know, you just quoted a fairly good Bob Dylan song right then. No, I don't know, but that yes. makes me a genius. The lyric is this. He says, it's, it's in, a, in a bridge in the song. He says, well, people don't live or die. People just float. She's huh. gone with the man in the long black coat. Mm. Yeah, that's the name of the song, Long Black Coat. Man in the Long Black Coat, I think. So, look, the first thing I'd, I should have said at the beginning, I'd like to say it now, a little bit late in the day, that, you know, sometimes you have to generalize to say anything at all. Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, that's what I've been doing. But I don't go along for the moment with the idea that, quote, we're all this, or we're all that, or we're all screwed, or... No. I mean, there's there's... You know, myriad exceptions, aren't there? And most of the deep exceptions you've never heard of. Why? Because these people are, are busy trying to be the, this exception, not out of principle, but because their conscience uh, or their learning obliges them in that direction. That's really important to, to acknowledge. You know, it's not, it's not everybody's done here. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the majority, the, the, the majority uh, uh, kind of garden variety unhappiness gets the grease, right? So, so there's, there's a reward system for not knowing these things. It's in place, and it's very effective. And they come to you every four years for your vote, and they leave you high and dry for the balance of the next four years. Nobody has recourse to you. You know, you vote as a, some exercise in, in power. It's not an exercise in power. Everybody knows it now. The whole thing is so discredited. Okay, so you could go on. The reason I'm mentioning this is to say, you know, it's, it's not really a matter of burning the whole thing down and starting again. That's, I'm not really even whispering that that's a, a, a legitimate orientation. What I'm saying instead is, imagine that the day will come when somebody, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you now? I'm, f- um, oh golly, I'm almost 51. No, you're not. I guess well, I you am. don't have a voice. You don't have a voice that says so, but... <laughs> But anyway, okay, so this may have already happened to you, but just imagine then that someone half your age uh, will come to you in the fullness of time, and they'll have two questions. And I believe this is a a given. I think this is coming, uh, and I'm speaking from experience, as you might guess. The first question will be something along the lines of, when you were my age, did you know what was happening? And the only honest answer you can give, the one that's, that's informed by your deep conscience on these matters, is to say, do you know, when I was your age, if people wanted to know what was happening, they could have. It may not be true that everybody did know, but everyone could have known if they put the paddle in, their wa- in, in the water and got to work. The next question has to be, almost certainly will be, so then, what did you do? And this is largely what guides me in this work that we're talking about today. I'm not sure that no matter at what level or layer of the dilemmas I'm articulating, we begin to work, that any of us will live long enough 
to taste, you know, the fruit of the, that labor, of to see a, a substantial lived change, a dynamic, you know, systematic and structural shift in these things. Because, look, these things are subtle, number one. Number two, as I said earlier, I think the lion's share of folks don't think it, it's not all that bad. Of course, until they get there, until they get to the dying time, and then there's a, an abrupt change of understanding. And why does it take mass a dissatisfaction and happiness, a mass misery, before anything like a movement towards sanity begins to, you know, heave up? Uh, I'm not sure why that is, but it would appear, you know, to take W.H. Auden's beautiful line, uh, he said something in the order of, you know, I've lived in such a time where we would rather be defeated than be persuaded. Hmm. And why does it take defeat to get people working? Whereas persuasion, there's plenty of persuasion. I guess that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to make the case for something without recourse to defeat, without recourse to symptoms, without recourse to too late as kind of the reason. You see. Yeah. Um, the reason is principally, well, there are people coming and the people I'm thinking of haven't even been born yet. And they're going to inherit from my generation a world that is in such deep disarray, I mean, our corner of the world, I should say, that is in such deep disarray, and, and we will be discredited accordingly and not claimed as people worth descending from, you see. Now, this is, this is a, a malady of a considerable order. You see, this is not, I'm not talking about personal unhappiness anymore. Yeah. I'm saying that can you imagine another generation of people in North America looking around, wondering why they weren't lucky enough to come from an ancestry worth coming from. We don't need another generation of that. It's largely why things look the way they do, because of that deep you know, humiliation and guilt, frankly, over from what we come. So this can be responded to now, but we have to do so as if these people are coming, you see, for their sake. And it's not altruism. Uh, it's um, if there's such a now this is going out on a limb here because you haven't asked me about dead folks, but here we go. <laughs> if there's such a thing as dead folks and they're not all just, quote, gone. And if there's such a thing as some part of you that, you know, that who's been, you know, Karen her whole life somehow survives the end of your metabolism and all the rest. I don't pretend to know the architecture, all that, but let's imagine that it could be so. Could it then be possible? that how you are as a dead person is in part a consequence of how those who come from you, and I don't just mean, you know, DNA ancestry, I mean cultural ancestry too, that your disposition as a dead person, your health, if you will, as a dead person derives in part from how willing your heirs are to live as if you had ever been mm. and to claim you as one of their own and to tell your story, and to live their lives accordingly. And then ask yourself, how many people do you know in your life who've done exactly that with the people that they come from? And there you begin to get a feel for the kind of uh, poverty that I'm trying to draw some attention to. It makes me 
I don't know if these are the right words, but it makes me think of how we carry our dead. How or I, not. Or not. Yeah. How we um, kind of die in little plastic boxes and go away. How we don't share stories. How we... Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And it makes me feel sad when I look back at my own, in, in my own life. I had an aunt, great aunt, who did a lot of genealogy, and that, all that work that she did only really went back a hundred years or so, 125 yeah. years, we don't, we've lost that spread, that sweep, the stories. It's a in large part, it's a consequence of what used to be called the Middle Passage. That is when we're coming across the Atlantic, those of us who come from, basically from Europe, uh, depending on the time we came, uh, we came by boat. And it was something, somewhere along the Atlantic, excuse me, on the passage across the Atlantic, uh, most of us dumped overboard where we came from hmm. as a prerequisite to becoming, quote, in, your, in the case of your country, an American. Uh, whereas an American is, is a reduced something else. I mean, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't mean to offend in saying this, but, but there's, there's either, you know, there's things that are historically true, no matter how inconvenient or, or, unpromising they sound. And the truth of the matter is that America, not the United States now, but the whole of the Americas, were crafted by more or less spontaneous and, and almost mad immigration, which was flight, was running away from something. It wasn't coming to anything at all. It was getting as far away from what troubled and tormented and impoverished and demented and, and, and you know, imprisoned and so on people back, quote-unquote, in the old country. The people who were doing well back there didn't come. I guess that's the point, you mm, see. Yeah. So that's the, that's the origins. That's the real origin story. Is it any surprise then when it's our turn to die five or six or eight or ten generations later that we die having no idea whatsoever who might be waiting for us, if there's such a thing, unto whom we might be dying at all? Or is it, is it the void? You see? So, so there's many things to take on. And I guess you and me, for a few minutes, have, have tried to do that by crafting you know, things to say wherein the current situation can actually be recognizable instead of antidote after antidote, which is not my... I don't believe people should be treated that way as um, pitching from one solution to the next. I think adults should be treated with respect. And one of the ways you do that is you say, we got a deeper dilemma than we have been willing up until now to see. And we've got to stop electing people on these four-year spasms who promised to fix everything in that time frame. And three and a half years later, we forget that they never got fixed because <laughs> we never came to a shared understanding of how we came to this in the first place. Mm-hmm. And these people who are promising solutions, I mean, they're clowns, frankly. You know, you understand obviously what I'm referring to yeah. going on in your country right now. Yes, indeed. And, uh, and, and it's, it's tragic, really, because how do you defend a system that's, you know, a problem-solving system, but not one, I mean, it frankly grows the problems it, pret- yeah. it pre- pretends to solve. That's right. And then doesn't have the stomach to stay with the dilemmas long enough where there's the skillfulness in enduring those things, first and foremost, without pitching headlong to the next fix, you see. Yeah. That's, 
That's why I'm talking about dying the way I am. Because dying is something to learn. It's not something to get on the other side of. You can't learn it by staying away from it. Hmm. By tranquilizing yourself to it, you see. Think about the phrase, tranquilizing yourself. Is that a fair representation of what happens when you're sedated? Mm. When you've got antidepressant running through your bloodstream, are you really tranquilized? Mm. Not likely. No. Mm. I know the clock is catching us. Can you let the listeners know how they can hear you speak, learn more about your work, learn about the Orphan Wisdom School? I'll give us the whole thing where you tell us how to find you. <laughs> Well, thank you for the invitation. It's, you know, it's simple. It's fairly direct. There's the website, orphanwisdom.com. And, uh, you know, I got a pretty extensive teaching tour on the road. I was in 12 countries last year and I guess more this year. And, and uh, for the moment, there's an appetite to at least consider these things or at least have me there. And so I'm, you can sort of find me. And failing that, you know, there's a few things on the website that are, you know, films and things I've written and so on like this. And between them, uh, they might, um, there might be something that I hope would be useful in there, which is all. I mean, that's the kind of glory I'm after. That could be something could be useful based on, you know, the things I was lucky enough and burdened enough to see when I was working the death trade all those years. Mm. Stephen, thank you so much for being on the being on the show. I really appreciate your directness mm. about dying. <laughs> well, your invitation very kind. Thank you for letting me take up a little time on this thing. You're very welcome. That's Stephen Jenkinson. His new book is Die Wise, a manifesto for sanity and soul. And you can find out more about Stephen and his work at orphanwisdom.com. He's also the subject of the uh, documentary film Grief Walker. And you can find that as well on his, on his website for purchase on his website. And lots of other cool books besides that we didn't even have time to go into or talk about or anything. So there's lots more. That's all at orphanwisdom.com. And of course, karenhager.com is where you can connect with me. If you are interested in classes or private sessions, that's the place to go to find out more about who I am and what I'm doing. If you like me, are wanting to take a look at a different way of sitting with, handling the topsy-turvy world that we live in, if you believe as I do that when we come together that our collective intention makes a difference, if you believe as I do that when we put our minds to it, our energy to it, our hearts into it, we can turn any tide, I invite you to join me for the monthly Opening the Peaceful Heart calls. Those are 15-minute calls that happen once a month. That is absolutely free, and it is guided meditation in connection with hundreds of people from all over the world, all coming together in the same place at the same time to join our collective intention for peace in our hearts and peace at the heart of the world. You can find out more at openpeacefulheart.com. And thank you for listening today. Together we are spreading a little more light in the world, and a little more light is always a good thing. Until next time, I'm wishing you peace. Peace.